0: Hello, this is the Cycling Science Podcast. I'm Professor Richard Davison, your host, and this is episode number 17, Interview with Professor Ron Mon, and it's Everything Nutrition. For those of you who are new to this podcast, we aim to dive into the latest research on all aspects of cycling, usually by interviewing the author, of a recent published paper. These interviews give us an opportunity to dig a bit deeper into the research itself, put the paper into context and end up with some practical takeaway messages. As the podcast is all about translation of research and recent innovation, we also occasionally interview top level practitioners or discuss topics that have come up recently in the cycling press. Remember, If you have any questions you'd like us to answer in a future show, please contact us through our website cycling-science.com. Also, if you would like professional advice or coaching from me, then please also use the contact page on our website or even through our Facebook page. Again, that is cycling-science.com. Okay, it's fun. I have the fantastic pleasure of uh, my guest today as uh, Professor Ron Mon. Uh, luckily, I've known Ron for I reckon about twenty. No, what's that? That's thirty, thirty-two years. My goodness, time flies. Um, and at that time, Ron, you were at the University of Aberdeen. Um, and you know your uh, expertise and all your publications are basically in the area of sports nutrition and exercise uh, biochemistry. So. Maybe you could just fill in the sort of history of your um, academic career,
1: and then we'll move on to what you did as a sporting career. Thank, thanks, Richard, and thanks for the opportunity to, to take part in this uh, podcast. I guess my, my university career started when I went to university with the intention of studying English literature, Latin and moral philosophy. But I, I, I realised pretty quickly that that, Probably was more of a hobby than something I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing professionally, so I switched and I switched to forestry because I've managed chopping down trees, um, but then I realized that. By the time you're 40, probably chopping down trees isn't a great way to spend your life either. So I switched to biochemistry and then I switched to physiology. Um, and having completed a, an undergraduate degree in physiology, I did a PhD in exercise-related physiology. So that's where I came from.
0: And uh, and you're a, a runner by background, aren't you? So I, 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 you used to run a number of marathons and...
1: Well, I was a runner, but but I wasn't a marathon runner. I trained with the the marathon guys and the ultra distance guys. We had a fantastic squad of marathon runners in Aberdeen. If you couldn't do about 217 or 218, you weren't in the club team. So it seemed to me that there was no future in being a marathon runner because I trained hard, but I was pretty useless. Uh, So I was mostly a middle distance runner. Although, as I said, I trained with those guys and we had really fantastic runners and I learned a lot from from what those guys did,
0: And I know, obviously, when I asked you to come onto the podcast, you said, I don't know much about cycling. But uh, I, I suspect that as we go through um, some of the content, uh, the, uh, uh, what you know about cycling, or certainly what you know about nutrition, which is useful for cyclists, uh, is extremely useful. And I know um, in several conversations with you in the past that um, I suppose what I like is your... Your plain message and the honesty of which you interpret the research, and uh, and I think that's uh, that's really important. And of course, you're retired now uh, officially. I think, uh, although you still have an association with uh, St Andrews University, isn't that right? That's right. And and the other thing is, obviously, you've. I I don't know if you do. You still chair the nutrition working group of the Medical and Scientific Commission for the
1: International Olympic Committee. I do, although that group's only intermittently active. We have we have had a few um, activities over the years, and I think one of my accomplishments was to have them support a meeting on dietary supplements in, in sport. And for the first time, we managed to get the IOC, Medical and Scientific Commission, to recognize that although supplements are a small part of nutrition, there are some supplements that can benefit some athletes in some situations. And that was a major step forward, because until that point, uh, the IOC, FIFA, IAAF, FINA, everyone else, the mantra was, don't take supplements, they don't work, and you're wasting your money. And that may be true of many of them, but there are a few that can benefit some athletes. So we now have a recognition from the IOC that there are a few supplements that might be beneficial for some people in some situations, if used properly. Mm.
0: And uh, I will put a reference um, in the, the notes to this uh, it, um, episode, because um, the latest one was published in, in 2018. Um, 2017
1: was the conference, yeah, and yeah, published in
0: 2018. Been, yeah, so I, I actually did a check yesterday, so <clears throat> and 2018 still a, a relatively new paper. I, I see it's been cited according to the stats I looked at um, already uh, 356 times. No, um,
1: very good. People so, are being noticed. Although they <laughs> may be saying it's a lot of garbage you've got. So.
0: <laughs> but of course, I should say, you know, that, uh, you know, just looking at your own record, you know, well over 300 publications, I think it is and about 20,000 citations. So, yeah, that's a very uh, extensive uh, publishing uh, career. So anyway, let's move on to the, the meat of, of uh, our conversation and I think this you know obviously one of the reasons to to get you onto the podcast was certainly my experience as both as a as a sports scientist and as a cycling coach is that um, many cyclists uh, use the professional cyclist as a model in terms of their sports nutrition and try to copy what those professional cyclists are doing and in many cases it's just Absolutely not necessary because they are in no way close to matching the uh, the both the duration, the frequency, and the energetic demands um, that uh, our professional cyclists are are undertaking. So, you know, the nutrition doesn't match. So, we're going to keep it simple uh, to start with. So we start with you know the macronutrients: so your carbohydrate, fat, and protein. You know, for a vast majority of cyclists, run. what's your recommendation in terms of proportionality?
1: Well, we'll come on to that in just a minute. But just to go back to what you said there, I think you're absolutely right that the the average club cyclist is too much influenced by what the professionals are doing. And it's not just in the area of nutrition. It extends all the way through. In my days as a runner, I used to see people halfway down the field who'd be spending £100 on a pair of running shoes. I would never spend £100 on a pair of running shoes. I wasn't that good. And of course, the guys at the front of the field, they don't buy their shoes, they get them for nothing, so it doesn't matter. But in cycling, I see people spending thousands and thousands of pounds on their kit. And it's hard to justify for the small difference in performance it makes when there are other things that can make a big difference and don't cost anything. And nutrition is one of those things. you know. I, Choosing a good diet, one that's going to help you achieve your performance goals, isn't necessarily any more expensive than choosing a diet that's inappropriate for what you're trying to do. So the basics are really quite simple. You need enough energy to support your training. You need the right mix of macronutrients, fat, carbohydrate, protein, and once in a while some alcohol, which we shouldn't forget about. And you need to ingest them, not just in the right amounts, but at the right times. So really, it's quite simple. All the essential nutrients come from the foods we eat. Yeah, foods first. I think
0: that's, um, we, we're too um, caught up in, uh, you know, in buying it from the shelf and in a little silver packet that we squeeze into our mouth. Eh?
1: Absolutely. And one of the problems with those little silver packets is they they might be, Useful in a few specific situations, but if they come, if they become too too much uh, dominant in your diet, you risk running short of some of the things that they don't contain, because very few of those give you the mix of all the essential micronutrients that food gives you.
0: So I suppose, um, you, you know, one of the things that you touched on there at the beginning is, you know, is, is obviously, uh, and we'll come to it a little bit later, is, you know, the energy in, energy out sort of e- equation. And, and there's no doubt, you know, that even a, an ordinary cyclist, simply due to the, the usually the duration of which they cycle, you know, compared to many other sports, you know, uh, you know, take your example as a runner, you know, going running for an hour is a fairly, you know, uh, tough a tough training session. Going cycling for an hour is, is not the same. Obviously, taking into consideration the intensity, but it's dead easy, you know, to, to cycle for an hour. But even running slowly for an hour is, is pretty tough. And um, so, therefore, you know, cyclists tend to accumulate over time a, a good number of hours. So so the, there is energy consumption there, extra energy consumption that needs to be met. Um, but in terms of I suppose the, the, the balance of, of carbohydrates, fat and protein, um, you know, it's in the textbooks, there's lots of different variations, but, you know, our diet should be predominantly carbohydrate. So 60% at least would that be, you know, and, and this is for a healthy diet, not, not necessarily for uh, an athlete or a you know, clubs
1: yeah, I, I think I think that's a reasonable guide for the, the sedentary person who's taking no exercise. But for the sedentary person, the, energy, the total energy intake is going to be relatively low. And if you don't do any exercise, it's remarkable how little energy you need to survive. And we see that by the fact that the, the, the population is getting ever fatter. Most people are eating more food energy than they're expending. And if you do that over a period of time, you're going to gain body fat. And that's the best way that people can know how much energy uh, they need. If your body fat's too high, you've eaten too much. And there's nothing new in that. Samuel Johnson pointed that out many, many years ago. Um, if somebody's too fat, they've eaten too much. So you need to get the energy intake right. But of course, we shouldn't think necessarily for somebody who's, who's actively training and competing about carbohydrate in terms of the percentage of the energy, because that total energy is going to vary. And we should think, how much carbohydrate do I need for today's training session? And if today's training session is going to be high intensity, the answer is you probably need quite a lot of carbohydrate. If it's going to be a low intensity session, you're burning mostly fat when you're exercising. Therefore, your need for carbohydrate probably isn't that high and in sport nutrition, the the idea that all athletes need a high carbohydrate diet at all times has been the prevailing view for at least 60 or 70 years. And it's not necessarily true for the average individual who's not training intensively.
0: Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And of course, uh, you know, we, you know, looking at training design, you know, cycling is an event many many of the um, disciplines you know it's a fairly long event and therefore you do need to have a, a training that is low intensity for for longer duration because you want to enhance the ability to burn fat and therefore not need carbohydrate because we know that that's a it's a limited resource you know so there's a limit in how much you can carry at the start of uh, any exercise and there's a limit to how much you can take on during exercise, um, and you know, in intense exercise, you cannot match um, your expenditure. So it's trying to get the balance right.
1: Absolutely, and the the one thing we have to remember there, though, is that although we have a huge reserve of, of fat, and it's a vitally important energy source, it is metabolically expensive in the sense that to get energy from burning fat, you need more oxygen. Now, we've become habituated to thinking that carbohydrate availability is the limiting factor. But in some situations, oxygen availability is going to be limiting when we're working hard. And in that situation, using fat as a fuel doesn't work. You get more energy per liter of oxygen using carbohydrate than you do using fat.
0: And that's probably a good point to sort of bring in, you know, the. The research and the, the uh, practice of, of high, deliberately uh, moving to higher fat diets um, with the hope of enhancing yeah, fat metabolism uh, and sparing the limited uh, glycogen stores or carbohydrate stores that we have. And uh, obviously in terms of, for me anyway, you know, the, 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 the best research The best designed research that's in the literature around this is Louise's Burke Supernova project. So maybe you might want to sort of explain your thoughts around, you know, this idea of trying to shift that metabolism through dietary uh, measures.
1: I, I think there are compelling reasons if you're in an event where where carbohydrate supply is going to be limiting and the opportunities for consuming carbohydrate are going to be limiting, then you want to maximize the amount of fat you can use. And that means working hard and training and then working on the endurance side, which we know increases the capacity of the muscle to use uh, fat as a fuel. But we also want to ensure we maximize our, our maximum oxygen uptake. And that means not doing lots of long endurance training, but doing some short-term high-intensity interval type training. Because if you look at the relationship between uh, how fast people can go in time, how long they can keep going at that speed, it falls off exponentially. And if you're exercising for 10, 15 minutes, you can go at pretty close to 100% of your maximum auction uptake. If you're exercising for a couple of hours, you can maybe, if you're reasonably well trained, do 80 or 85 percent of your maximum. If you went there for six hours, you can maybe do 65 percent of your maximum. So increasing your maximum lets you go faster at all of those durations. But if you're working at something like 85 percent of your maximum, you don't have much spare capacity. So if you were to up to 88%, just a small increase, you'd fatigue very much sooner. If you're working at 65% of your maximum, there's a little bit of slack in the system. And that's maybe where you can benefit from having more fat as a fuel, because you can increase the fraction of maximum you're using maybe from 65 to 67 68 percent and it's no great penalty your cardiovascular system could cope with that so using fat as a fuel is great in the longer duration events but if you want to go fast and the example i use is if you want to break two hours for a marathon you ain't going to do it using fat as a fuel you're going to have to use carbohydrate and you're going to have to use virtually all carbohydrate because using fat means your cardiovascular system is going to struggle to cope. So I think for me, you know, my
0: takeaway from, if you like, the the Supernova project is that you know you can use diet and you can shift your metabolism uh, towards a more fat based uh, metabolism. That that's possible. That's and the the only problem is then that when the and in the Supernova project, it was the race walkers were in a performance trial. They actually went worse you know the, yeah, the yeah. performance went down and 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 i guess that and i well i know that the measurements that they, they've done obviously showed that they were less efficient in other words what you said earlier obviously they because they were burning fat they were using more <laughs> oxygen and uh, even at walking you know
1: re, uh, elite
0: level walking is <laughs> for most of us yeah. is like running <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. a very high intensity. Yeah.
1: But there are still some uncertainties in those studies as to what is a true adaptation to the high fat diet and what is a response to the low carbohydrate diet? Because if you simply don't eat anything for 24 hours, you'll shift your metabolism towards fat. Yes, no, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But your performance will go down in exactly the same way. Now, interestingly. If you starve a rat for 24 hours, what do you think happens to its performance if you put it to run on a treadmill? It's performance performance goes up. So, short term fasting improves performance in rats. It dramatically reduces performance in humans, even though you've had a big shift towards fat metabolism. Now, that's, that's not an adaptation. That's a response. That's an, a response to reducing the carbohydrate availability. And the idea is that over the longer term, if you do that repeatedly for long periods of time, the muscle adapts and becomes better at using fat. But of course, if you've been and I, again, I have to use running as an example because I know about running. I don't know so much about cycling. If you've been running one hundred and sixty, two hundred kilometers a week for five years. You pretty well maximized your capacity to use fat. There isn't the same reserve capacity as you get if you take a bunch of undergraduate sports science students who volunteer for your experiment and put them in the lab. But the fact that Louise Burke's race walkers who were high level elite athletes were able to show those responses, suggests that it may still be possible to get something over and above what you do just with training. So diet does have an effect on top of the training effect.
0: Yeah, except it doesn't make any faster. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what your metabolism is. It's the first person over the line.
1: (laughs) As as, as Louise would say, you know, there are no prizes for oxidising a lot of fat. The prices are for how fast you can go. Well, again, that raises another interesting point, if I can digress. The prices are not for how fast you can go. The prices are for beating the other guys. And I spent much of my life doing studies where the the, the exercise test we used was a laboratory test, usually cycling rather than running, because cycling is much easier to control in the lab. And we had people go at a fixed power output for as long as they possibly could. Time to fatigue test. Now, that test has been heavily criticized by people who say it's not relevant to the real world of competitive sport. Now, in cycling, there are some time trials, but most events are races where the aim is not to go as fast as you can, but to beat the other people. And if you look at what happens in a race, and it's much the same in cycling as it is in running a bunch of guys set off all together at the start, gradually they drop off until you're left with a small group that gets progressively smaller until at the finish, there's only one guy at the front. And for those people, when they decide to drop off the pack, that's their time to fatigue. That's the point at which they can't sustain the power output they have to sustain, so they let it go. And it's much more striking in, in running than it is in cycling. But you see people gradually falling off. And of course, they don't stop and sit down, they slow down. But the time to fatigue test is a very good mimic of what happens in a race. The race is not about going as fast as you possibly can. The race is about trying to beat the other guys. And it's essentially a time to fatigue test.
0: Of course, uh, you know, uh, we mentioned earlier about the impact of intensity on on carbohydrate utilisation. And if we look at, uh, you know, cycling road races, as an example, Tour de France, we know that there are stages there where, you know, the intensity goes up very significantly. Um, and I, I recall Chris Boardman uh, using an analogy of, uh, of a Russian roulette type thing where you have a revolver and you have so many bullets and that's how many times you can press on the accelerator really hard because each time you do that, you know, the the tank of carbohydrates going down at a heck of a wreck and 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 you can't there's no way back
1: yeah um from that yeah and 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 then running we call it hitting the wall and cycling you call it bonking it's it's when you've run out i mean you may be able to turn the pedal slowly you can't generate any power you need carbohydrate to generate that power and you know, if if you if you don't believe me, just don't eat any carbohydrate for a couple of days and go out and try and do a hard session. We've done those experiments. You simply can't do it. And the really interesting thing there is that if you do that, if you if you go on a carbohydrate-free diet for three or four days and then try to do what you would normally do on the on the bike, within the first few revolutions of the pedals you know that today is not going to be a good day so it's not a question of saying you haven't got much glycogen and you'll fatigue sooner it's within a couple of revolutions of the pedal something in your muscle is saying to your brain today is not a good day don't ask me to work hard today i can't do it and we don't know what that something is
0: And, of course, I think that's an important thing in terms of designing training programs as well, in terms of you know uh, I think you talked about it um, earlier in terms of how many days you can actually train hard because there is a limit to how much you know energy you can expend and replace. Um, so you know, even in the Tour de France, your yellow jersey wearers are or at least those who are vying for the yellow jersey, have to be careful. They do have to have rest days. essentially yeah. sit in the pack conserve as much energy as possible and try and regain their uh, carbohydrate stores because they know coming up the next day there is a mountain stage or something, some critical stage that's going to be determining.
1: Absolutely. And that's true in training as much as it is in racing. You know, you can't train hard every day. Every athlete knows that. Not every coach knows that. But every athlete knows that you can't train hard every day. And there's a reason why God invented rest days. And the reason is that if you train really hard for long duration every day, you can't keep up with the muscle glycogen resynthesis in between those training sessions. Your glycogen falls and you you just start to feel bad. And then, of course, other things happen. You get sick, you get injured, you get chronic fatigue, you get... Mental burnout, all those other things that come with not having enough carbohydrate fuel for the brain and the muscle. And one of the other
0: things that, in terms of,
1: um, you know,
0: certainly uh, many professional teams reportedly have been trying is, is you know, the ingestion of ketone bodies as an attempt to try and, I suppose, eke out um, the um, the the limited carbohydrate stores and so on. And I I don't know what what your thoughts on 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 ketone bodies as a supplement?
1: I, I think the, the idea, the theory is sound. If we if we don't eat enough carbohydrate, our body uses more fat. As part of that process, we generate these, these ketone bodies from the partial breakdown of fats, and we can use those ketone bodies as a fuel. The evidence that we can use them at high rates is not terribly good. And if you're going to if you're going to consume something in that situation, I think you're still better consuming carbohydrate than you are consuming ketone bodies. And various things have been tried before. People tried medium-chain triglycerides at one time. People tried branch-chain amino acids. People tried glycerol, which is part of the, the, the triglyceride molecule, uh, as potential fuels that could substitute for carbohydrate. but. If you're in a situation where you can consume something, why not consume carbohydrate? And until somebody shows me some compelling evidence that ketone bodies are more effective in that situation than carbohydrate, I'll still think the recommendation is consume carbohydrate when you can.
0: Um, so of course we know that uh, consuming carbohydrate, you know, there is a limited limitation in terms of potential uptake. Um, and and of course the uh, the manufacturers of, of uh, sports drinks and so on now regularly also offer a, a mix of um, carbohydrate and fructose because fructose is a as a different pathway and allows additional carbohydrate to be taken up. How, you know where do you think do, do, in terms of most cyclists do you really think that they need to have this uh, uh m- you know mixed carbohydrate that's got fructose in it as well or are most people never going to get near this sort of the limit of
1: you know um 60 grams or so um of carbohydrate well yeah. You have to distinguish, of course, between training and racing, and, and racing is going to be a little bit different. So at racing, you have to think about the duration, you have to think about the conditions. And different conditions, there'll be different priorities. For different individuals, there'll be different priorities. We we used to do a lot of measurements where we measured how quickly people could empty drinks from the stomach into the intestine, and then how quickly they could absorb those drinks into the circulation and use the carbohydrate as a fuel. <coughs> And the reality is, just as some people are blessed with wonderful talent, the cyclists, some people are blessed with fast gastric emptying and good intestinal absorption. Others are not. So if you're one of those guys who's got very slow gastric emptying and a very slow rate of intestinal absorption, you're going to find it difficult to consume a lot of carbohydrate containing drinks during a race. Now, with training, with practice, you can improve that a little bit. But it's just like saying, you know, um, I haven't got talent as a cyclist and I can improve with training. I'm still never going to beat Chris Boardman, even today. Um, so there's a limit to how much you can absorb. But you also need to think, how, how badly do I need this? If the event's going to last, if it's a 10-mile time trial and it's going to be over in 25 minutes, I don't need to consume anything. If it's an event lasting an hour or two and it's a really hot day, I maybe need to think a little bit more about water and electrolytes than I do about fuel, because that's potentially more of a problem, dehydration in the later stages, than running out of car behind it. If it's a cold day and it's a fairly long event, I'm not going to be sweating so much. Therefore, I think a bit more about how can I maximize carbohydrate? And then I start to say, OK, I want to drink with some with some glucose and some fructose in it, and I want all the bells and whistles. But in other situations, it's not that important. Same in training. You know, if I'm going out for half an hour, an hour, do I need to drink anything? Probably not. But what I do need to do is to practice drinking. So when it comes to race day, I know what works for me. I know what feels good. I know, I know the skills I need to drink while still riding at high speed. And it is a skill. Timing your breathing so you don't inhale the, 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 the drink you're trying to take. It's not that easy. But I know some people who never, ever drink in training, but they expect to go into a race and consume something doesn't work like that. You have to practice a drinking strategy. You have to know what feels comfortable. not about
0: practice, of course, there is a a school (laughs) school of thought around, you know, um, and this is for competition, that if you're trying to maximise your carbohydrate intake, that that it is possible to learn that process as in in training deliberately. Start to consume really large amounts and then you really start to produce uh, some adaptation towards When you get to your event that that you can actually um take up more car migrate than you would have done if you hadn't gone through that sort of training process what should you know What's your views on that, and what's the mechanism? How does that how
1: does that work? Um, the, 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 there is obviously evidence that the gut adapts very well to to what you throw at it, and one of the one of the interesting examples is if you if you take a, again we were interested in, in intestinal absorption and, and gastric emptying. If you take an adult animal, it never sees lactose, milk sugar because adult animals don't consume milk, although they all, cons- all mammals consume it when they're weaned. If you give an adult um, sheep, for example, a pig, if you give them large amounts of milk, they tend to get diarrhoea because the lactose is not well absorbed. But if you repeat that process, the gut induces the enzymes they need to digest and absorb lactose. And humans are no different. You can get the gut to adapt to what you give it. But you have to expose it to those things on a repeated basis. And lots of people have a bad experience with a drink and training and they say, I can't drink it, never again. But you just have to persist. And I, I shouldn't I shouldn't tell you this, but my own experience when I was training reasonably seriously, we do two sessions a day, an interval session in the morning and at lunchtime and an interval session in the evening. So high intensity repeated sprints. And um, I used to do the evening session about six o'clock. And there's a girl I used to know who I would like to know who went to the union to have a tea about five o'clock. So, I'd go into the student union, have a steak, pie, chips, and beans at five o'clock. And I was on the track at six o'clock during a high intensity interval training session. And sure, you throw up a few times, but it's amazing how the gut adapts. And you can adapt to putting fluid and indeed solids in the gut. And having adapted to that, I would horrify some of the training guys by setting off on a training run with a sandwich in my hand. Now, you'll occasionally. You'll occasionally see a bike rider eating a sandwich or a snack or something. You very seldom see a runner eating a sandwich. Yeah. No, no, the, I think the
0: physical Because, movement, the,
1: because... the stress on the gut's much greater yeah. when you're bouncing up and down on the on the road than you are when you're you're riding a bike. Yeah. But the gut really does adapt. Yeah. But of
0: course, I suppose our contention would be is that, you know, for most cyclists you know that taking on carbohydrate they shouldn't need to go on you know it might be different if you're you know at a, a professional or elite level there may be advantages but i i suspect that for the vast majority of cyclists that this idea of you know trying to train your gut to really extreme you know, 100 grams of carbohydrate an hour or something like that's probably not the, the, the carbohydrate for them is not going to be a limiting
1: factor um, no, and I, I don't think it, I don't think it's the best use of your of of your of your, of your time and your your focus. I think there are much more important things to focus on than there are uh, in terms of worrying about that. Because there may be a few race situations where you're trying to do that, but in most race situations, it's not going to be terribly relevant. Okay. Sort of coming back full circle around to sort of energy
0: balance. Of course, Tour de France riders are are these days pencil thin, um, you know, because the power to weight ratio is 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 such a um, a determining factor. Um, now to achieve that, you know, we we find many ordinary cyclists trying to you know do the same thing. You know, what's your view on that and the risks uh, around you know essentially running a deficit?
1: yeah, I mean, I think there are there are a number of very different factors there. One of the things is you don't get to be a two defense cyclist without without being on the bike four or five, six hours a day in training. And one of the challenges then is is eating enough to replace what you've spent during those four or five or six hours, because if you're going if you're gonna do that that amount of training, you're probably going to sweep for at least eight hours a night. So that leaves you with 16 hours in the day. If you're on the bike for six hours, that leaves you 10 hours when you're not on the bike. So add in a bit of preparation time, occasionally a shower, or a wash and a change and whatever afterwards. The time available for eating is limited. And your appetite is quite often suppressed if you've done a really hard session and if you're about to do a hard session you quite often don't feel like eating too much before you do the session because you don't particularly want to stop on route to have to get rid of the stuff out of your gi tract um so all of these things conspire to say when you're when you're training hard for long periods it's hard to eat enough to keep up with what you're expending that's a world of difference from the person who's doing 40 minutes, three times a week. And some people see that 40 minutes, three times a week as a license to eat as much as they can. I'm an athlete. I need to eat a lot. Well, you're not an athlete if you're doing 40 minutes, three times a week. You're somebody that does a little bit of exercise occasionally. So in that situation, there's a danger that people overcompensate by eating too much. But we shouldn't use the 2 de France as an example, because the challenge there is eating enough. So you need to eat enough. But the simple way of knowing whether you're eating enough is to do the, the pinch test, you know, take a, a pinch. And if you can pinch an inch, you've eaten too much.
0: So one of the other strategies that have been tried recently and, and certainly um, the more current literature, is, is debunking it a little bit, is it's this idea of deliberate fasting prior to training. So, you know, maybe not eating at night. So this idea of train low um, carbohydrate or carbohydrate periodization and an attempt to enhance um, physiological adaptation. What's your view? What's your views on that? Is it is it?
1: Uh, I, I, again, I think if you're if you're at the sharp end of the field, you'll try this. um to see if you can make a little bit of a difference if you're at the middle of the field one of the things you don't particularly want is for your training to be unpleasant and be unnecessarily hard and it is going to be harder if you train in a fasted situation if you don't have carbohydrates a fuel so the 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 difference, I think, there is for the guy who's doing it deliberately, who knows what they're doing, you accept this is going to be a really hard session because I'm trying to do a quality session with limited carbohydrate. It's not going to be a top quality session, but I still need to work really hard. For most people, they enjoy the feeling of being, and I speak from personal experience because this is what I used to do. It's it's good to feel the effort, to feel the fatigue, but you don't want to be completely knackered. That's a technical term that we use to describe how it feels to do a hard session when you don't have carbohydrate. So if you had a little bit more carbohydrate available, you could do the session at a faster pace or do it for a bit longer and not finish completely wrecked. So for the average person, I think there are compelling reasons not to do fasted training. For the guy at the front end of the field, fine, build it into your strategy occasionally, but don't overdo it. If you're not at the front end of the field, think really about whether this is to your best
0: advantage. I think as well, one of the things that I usually respond when I'm asked the question about this is as well is in going back to the, um, the Tour de France uh, cyclists being very thin those guys have somebody that monitors their diet to the nth degree so they know that they're getting enough energy to to uh, match their expenditure but they also know that they're getting the right balance of both macro and micronutrients to sustain the level of exercise that they are doing very few of us have that luxury to have somebody that's looking over them at that that level of detail uh, to ensure that you're um, optimal. So, if, if the benefits for, as you say, somebody who's mid-pack are probably limited, yeah. it's probably not worth it.
1: Again, one one of the things to to bear in mind when you you raise that point is if you if you're training very hard and eating enough food. To meet your training requirements, and you're choosing a variety of foods, you don't need to worry about all the vitamins and minerals and all the little bits and pieces, because on five or six thousand calories a day, you've got lots of vitamin C and lots of vitamin D and lots of everything else. If you're restricting your energy intake, and you're only on sixteen hundred calories a day or two thousand calories a day, you have to be a lot more careful in what you and what you choose. In order to ensure you get enough protein, enough carbohydrate, enough of the foods that are high in iron that are high in vitamins, and so on. So in some ways, it's easier for the guys doing the big training volume to select a food. you You've got a lot more latitude to say, "I'll have a few Mars Mars." Other candy bars are available, by the way. Um, but you've got room in your diet for some of those sweet treats and other things. Yeah, of if you're restricting energy intake, you don't have much room in your diet for those things. And one of the mistakes that people often make when they take up a cycling program is it's halfway aimed at losing weight. So they start doing too much exercise and at the same time they reduce their energy intake. And after a couple of days, you can't keep going. So one of the the key things for people who are embarking on a training program is not to go on a diet at the same time. Save the diet for three months down the road. Get fit and then you can start thinking about losing weight. But in the first few months, focus on fitness and then worry about weight. And um, we're
0: coming near the end Ron. and so to finish off, I'm going to sort of switch to specifically looking at your uh, most recent uh, sort of IOC consensus on supplements. Um, and in there, obviously, you uh, you know, as I think you indicated earlier, there, there are a small number of supplements that there is good evidence that they would enhance uh, performance. Um, and so, you know, if I do. Uh, Quote directly from your your paper, it says, supplements claiming to directly or indirectly enhance performance are typically the largest group of products marketed to athletes, but only a few, including caffeine, creatine, specific buffering agents and nitrate have good evidence of of benefits. Now, if I was to sort of contextualise this for cyclists, nearly all cyclists use caffeine. I can pretty much be sure of that uh, probably increasing number use nitrate, um, less so the others. But from your experience, you know, what do you think is the best advice in terms of either caffeine or nitrate uh, for cyclists? Because we know that they do help.
1: I, I think the the evidence is, is fairly good that they can help. Um, I think do help is perhaps putting it a bit strong. There are some situations where they probably won't help. And there are some individuals who seem to be resistant to the benefits that others experience from using some of these supplements. So there is no guarantee, although the people selling the supplements will tell you, they're guaranteed to improve the performance. It's it's a it's a balance of the evidence. They probably do for most people, but you need to look at the situation. If you look at one of the ones you mentioned, for example, um creatine, the evidence is very good. It can show it can help improve strength and power. So good if you're doing short high-intensity sprints. It probably doesn't help the guy doing prolonged exercise. And the same with the buffering agent. If you're a pursuit cyclist, you might want to think. You certainly want to think about using bicarbonate as a strategy in competition. If you're riding in a, an endurance event, it's not something you think about. And the evidence on nitrate is is pretty good. The evidence it works as well for the elite athlete as it does for the the Recreational athlete, and most of the studies are done on recreational athletes, isn't entirely convincing. Although it it, it almost certainly has benefits for, for everybody who who takes it in some situations. So I think we we have to be realistic and we have to look at the, the optimum strategy. Caffeine is an interesting one. There's a tendency to think that more is better. In the case of caffeine, more is certainly not better. Um, We've seen fatalities resulting from excessive overdoses of caffeine, even in situations where people should know better. There have been at least a couple of cases in, in experimental laboratories and universities in the UK where subjects have become severely unwell and even died as a result of excessive caffeine administration because somebody got the dose wrong. So a clear message, if you're going to use caffeine, be careful. Um, Too much is not good. But even before you get to the dangerous situation, you get to the potentially harmful performance situation. And if you take too much caffeine, you probably won't perform as well as you should. You get jittery, you get nerves, you get all sorts of things going on. But it can help performance in events ranging from a few minutes to a few hours. And I suppose that if, if we had a takeaway message uh,
0: to finish off with, Ron, is that, uh, you know, even on a, on a food first uh, sort of basis, um, too much of anything is nearly bad for you. Um, it's like getting it all in the right balance. And we know that uh, the right food or the right supplement given at the right time in the right context is going to improve your performance potentially. Um, each one of us probably having an individual response. Uh, as well, um, um, so we do have to bear that in mind at any point in time when we're looking at our own um, practices and what we might advise uh, cyclists uh, to do.
1: I don't know if you've got any last words, Ron. You want? Yeah, to- I would just, I would just emphasise that 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 bit, and of course, as somebody who's spent a, a lot of time uh, working in nutrition and talking about nutrition. I would say, you know, in terms of the big things that are going to have an impact on performance, it's not one of those big things. The big things are talent. You need to be sure you've chosen your parents wisely. The next big thing is really motivation. You have to want to do the training that you need to do in order to succeed. And there are plenty of people with the talent who happen not to be interested in cycling. So they they don't they don't figure. But you have to be motivated and then you need to do the training. And training is a far bigger factor, orders of magnitude bigger than nutrition. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to focus on improving performance, don't spend so much time reading about nutrition, spend more time on the bike training. Nutrition's the icing on the top of the cake. <laughs> it is, but you need a cake and people want the icing. And if you look at kids, they'll often eat the icing and leave the cake. Exactly. That's, I think that's a great
0: point to finish. Uh, Ron, thank you very much for your time. Uh, some really great advice, and uh, and I think it's obvious uh, the years of studying this and, and, and looking at all of the literature, um, it's great to be able to distill it down into simple messages. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Richard. Well, folks, I hope that you enjoyed the interview. And of course, I need to thank uh, Ron uh, for his contribution and arguably his contribution for a very long time to uh, sports science uh, in the UK and wider afield. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer in a future show, then please contact us through our website, cycling-science.com. Until the next time, thanks for listening. Remember, good scientists and coaches always look for quality evidence to back up your work. So never just accept what you read or hear seek quality sources to inform your training and racing.